Well, good morning, everybody. Great to have you all here. And uh, it's just a beautiful day to be together. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our t- uh, sermon series on the uh, parables of Jesus that we're just doing through the end of this summer. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares, or in many tr- modern translations, it'll say the wheat and the weeds, which is probably what I'll refer to it uh, this morning. And again, if you weren't here at the beginning of the service, if you go to bethanychurchmn.com slash OS, all of our lyrics and the scripture that we're reading in a moment are on there for uh, this morning. So the parable of the wheat and the weeds. When you read this parable and you sort of meditate on it and begin to try to understand what its meaning is and its application, it can be a bit disturbing at first blush, to be honest. And it was for the disciples as well when they first heard it. And so they asked Jesus for a specific explanation of this parable. And uh, later on in Matthew 13, he gives them a very explicit interpretation of this parable that he gives of the parable of the wheat and the weeds because they're disturbed by it. But then as I hope to demonstrate in a couple of minutes, as they begin to grapple with this and work it out in their lives, it's actually a very liberating reality and truth that Jesus is trying to communicate through this parable. And I hope the the same is true for us when this parable is properly understood. So let's read together. If you have a Bible, it's in Matthew 13. Otherwise, it's there on the church website, starting in Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus says this. He says, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plant sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So, do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, tie them in bundles, and burn them, and collect the wheat into my barn. And then later, down in Verse 36, so the disciples hear this, and then Jesus goes on to tell some other parables, and they they wrap up ministry for the day, and then the disciples come to him. They're bothered by this parable, and this is what happens in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the the weeds in the field. Rather, He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And the harvesters, whoops, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather from His kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. And Father, we just pray this morning that we would have ears to hear 
eyes to see as we so desperately need in Jesus' name. So the parable of the wheat and the weeds is an important one because it deals with one of man's most vexing problems. One of the problems that's bothered us most since we've been thinking, navel-gazing and, and philosophizing. It's the problem of evil. Where does evil come from? And how do we deal with evil? What is our approach to evil? How do we get rid of it? And for the disciples in the first century, besides the evil that's, that's common to all men, they were dealing with being a, a people who were oppressed, who had enemies on every side. They were living in an occupied country. And, this, and liberation from this occupation and oppression was foremost in their minds and the evils that they endured in their lives. And Jesus was very aware of this preoccupation being raised in that culture himself and how his ministry raised related to those struggles that they were going through. In Malachi chapter 4, the last verses in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi says, and listen to these passages in context to what we've read from Jesus this morning. In Malachi 4, he says, For indeed the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant evildoers will be chaff. The coming day will burn them up, says the Lord of heaven's armies. It will not leave them, even a root or branch. But for you who respect my name, the son of vindication will rise with healing and healing wings. You will skip about like calves released from the stall. You will trample on the wicked. They will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So this expectation of liberation and the restoration of the glory of Israel is foremost in their hearts. And then along comes John the Baptist, right? Along comes John the Baptist talking about Jesus. And he says this in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands. He will clean out the threshing floor gather his wheat into the storehouse, but the chaff he will burn up with indistinguishable fire. So these are the things that are foremost in the hearts and the, and the minds of the disciples before Jesus tells this parable. And you can imagine the excitement and the anticipation of the days they're living in that they give to get to live and work with Jesus, the Messiah. And this is it, John the Baptist says. He's here. He's here. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to gather the wheat and, and burn the chaff. They've got to be so excited, right? Glory days. Glory days are here again. Our forefathers, David and Solomon, the kingdom, is going to be restored to us. They're, they're wearing the hats. They've got the make Israel great again hats on. They're ready to roll. This is it. And they're with the man who's got the plan and has got the power to carry it out. Think of the excitement. And Jesus is aware. Jesus is very aware of this. In Luke 19, as he's teaching parables, he says, it says, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. He's teaching these parables because he knows this is their burning occupation and excitement and desire. And this parable, why it's disturbing to the disciples and they want... An interpretation is because it drives a dagger into the heart of those ambitions and expectations. Jesus, are you really saying you're not going to restore the kingdom now? You're not going to bring 
vengeance? You're not going to wipe evil from and restore the kingdom? Is that really what you're saying? How disappointing. And how disappointing for us as we continue to struggle with evil in the earth. And Jesus says, at the end of the age, at the end of the age, it's hard for us. But in this parable, we learn some things. We learn some things about evil and its nature and our interaction with it. The first thing that's important that we learn is in this parable, evil is personified. Evil is personified. I think we often think subconsciously, we think about evil and we think about sort of this force that's just out in the world that infects people. Evil is out there. But that's not what Jesus teaches. He teaches that he made a good world with good seed that did not have bad seed in it. But it was the devil and the fallen sons of God who sowed the evil into the world. And this evil is in and carried out through people. It's not an inanimate force out there, an ether. It is in people that evil and other beings that it is carried out. And second, and so to destroy evil, if we want to wipe evil from the earth, you have to destroy people. You have to destroy people. And it says also, the thing we learn about evil in this passage, that Jesus is the one who is tasked with destroying evil. He alone is judge, jury, and executioner, and the one who decides when and where evil will be destroyed and that we are to leave the tares to him that is his business why is that why is that so important that evil is personified and that jesus is the one who's tasked with it because brothers and sisters i'm gonna tear up just tell you now (laughs) 40 years ago there were people all over the earth who were praying that evil would be destroyed and wiped off the earth. And if Jesus had said yes, I would have been torn up. I would have been torn. I would have been thrown into the fire. And at some point, so would you. But how quickly we forget that we too were once tares. We too were once tares. And we turned to righteous indignation. And I'm not like those people, those evildoers, or all those labels that you have for the people that you hate, or you consider your enemies in all the spheres of life. How quickly we turn to righteous indignation. But I would tell you this morning that yes, you were just like them. And telling yourself anything other is nothing but arrogance. Your destruction was as assured as all of those who you consider evil. But how quickly we turn to judgment and punishment and wanting to identify who the tares are and root them out and destroy them. And the disciples had to learn this lesson. Perhaps it was the hard way. (laughs) We see it played out in the scriptures in Luke chapter 9. The disciples are with Jesus and they're traveling through towns and regions and they they come to the area of Samaria where the Samaritans live and the Samaritan villages are. And if there's one thing that's true is they hate Samaritans (laughs) on every level. Ethnically, they hated Samaritans. 
Religiously, they were heretics. They hated Samaritans. Politically, they hated Samaritans. They had sided with the oppressors against Israel in several cases. They hated Samaritans. And what happens when they come to the Samaritan villages? They reject Jesus. <laughs> they reject the man. Oh, baby. <laughs> now they're going to get it. Now they're going to get it. They've rejected the man. <laughs> and they turn to Jesus and they say, let's rock. Let's call down fire from heaven and destroy these evildoers. This is it. This is the time. And here's where we start. And Jesus turns to them. He says, you do not know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You do not know what spirit you are of. And had he answered their desire to call down destruction on their enemies, they would have destroyed some of the harvest. Jesus did not come to destroy the harvest. He came to turn the tares into wheat. In Acts chapter 8, not... That many months later, Acts chapter 8, Philip the Evangelist goes to these same villages, the Samaritans, and what happens? He performs signs and wonders, and they receive the word of the Lord. Revival breaks out in the Samaritan villages, and some of those same disciples that so badly wanted to call down destruction on them, Peter and John, they come to see what's happening, and they lay hands on the Samaritans, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And revival goes forth in the Samaritan villages. But what if God had answered their prayers and their desires to destroy evil? So Peter writes in his second epistle, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to us that he will drive evil from the earth. He will establish his kingdom. He is not slow, as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance for the wheat, for the tares to become wheat. And Paul writes to us in Romans 2, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, but you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And God's focus is where ours focus should be. His focus is not on the tares. He's got the tares covered. His focus is on the wheat, the harvest. Jesus says, leave the tares alone. Leave the tares alone. Leave them to be. The job is not open for applications for judge, jury, and executioner. The job's been filled by Jesus. Instead, like the disciples, though, so often, don't we? We obsess. We obsess over the tares. Who are they? How can we deal with them? Hasn't it become our national pastime? Who are those evildoers? Who are those enemies, those idiots, those morons? What are they teaching? What are they saying? How can we run them out of town? How can we destroy them? Isn't that what keeps us up at night? Who said what? Who's doing what plan? How can we destroy them? 
It's what we talk about. It seems to be all we talk about when we get with our friends. Who are the tares? How can we get rid of them? But God's focus is on the wheat, where our focus should be and what the effect will be on the wheat. And if we focus on judging and tearing up tares, Jesus will lose some of the harvest that he died for and that he is patiently waiting to execute judgment so they may come to repentance. But it's liberating. It was liberating to the disciples. And you see this in their ministry and the joy and the power of their ministry when they lay down the desire to pull up the tares and execute judgment and they focus on the harvest. And why should not we, brothers and sisters, as we are called and taught to do in this passage, to lay down judgment and fault finding and vengeance and hate, to quit focusing on the tares, but focus on the joy of salvation and the work of God in the world to turn the tares into wheat so that His harvest will be abundant. Should that not be our life and our focus? Is that not what Jesus is teaching us in this passage? I say that He is. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and close out our service. And uh, as they're making their way up, We'll just uh, pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your patience, your forbearance, that you desire none to perish, that you were patient with me, that you were patient with everyone here. Though we were tares, God, though we deserve destruction, you were patient with us. And you reached out to us in kindness and in love to draw us to yourselves that we would be part of your wheat harvested in to your barn, shining with your glory at the end of the age, as it says in the passage. God, we thank you for so rich and so wonderful a salvation that you've given to us. God, forgive us. Forgive us, God, where we've stepped beyond what you've called us to do. We've made ourselves the judge and the executioner of mankind, which is your role. God, forgive us. Forgive us for that, Lord. May we be consumed with the joy of your salvation, the message of your glorious gospel, God. May in our generation and in our lifetime, Lord, we be a shining example to those who need your word, who those we may consider enemies, we hate. God, may you turn it into love. God, that many would see and many would hear. Many would come to know you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to, feel free to stand for this last song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong